Good afternoon, you're tuning to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. The Daily Maverick Show is proudly delivered to you by PostNet Courier. Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. Good afternoon. It's just after 1.05 p.m. Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and as usual, I'll be with you for the next hour. You know, you can you can tweet us uh, to get involved in the conversation on at DMShowZA. Give us a call on 861 I'm joined in studio by my comrade, Greg Nicholson. I'm Andla. <laughs> and Fatima Matiba, who's usually on social media making it happen. Fatima, welcome as usual. Thanks, King. So before we get started, you saw the rain and the hail the other day. You saw the, the heat wave last week. Do you guys think it is the end of the world? Is it the rapture? The end of the world? Yes. I thought the end of the world was because of the drought, so now it's the end of the world no, because, it's the things because of come too much rain. If you studied on your revelations, when these things all come together, these are the signs of the end of days. <laughs> no? Positive note. Another positive note to start the show on. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll just set up a different show on it and we can discuss this, the symbols <laughs> of the second coming of Christ. And so that's, that's my homework. Okay, anyway, as for today's show, first we'll be talking about transformation in the legal profession. And we've, you know, we've got a, we've got a great sort of set of guests uh, lined up to actually explore this issue that really blew up a few weeks ago during the silicosis case. We'll also be talking about Kenyan corruption and what's going on there. We had a journalist who was held for reporting and speaking about corruption going on in the state. So we'll be speaking to John Girashu about that. And lastly, we'll be talking to Ernest Nkosi, who's, who's the director of a, of a film, Tina Sobabili, and, and that's being tipped to potentially be in line for an Oscar. So is that something that's going to happen? And what, and what is the work and effort that went into this sort of great story of making that film come together? But first, transformation in law. This is something that, you know, came to the, uh, to the public conversation a few weeks ago during the silicosis case when, 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 when part of the, one of the people, Richard Spore, involved with the case put up a social media post about, about why he was unable to have enough black people and black, black uh, advocates and black attorneys as part of the team. And it really started this great conversation of why don't we have enough, why don't we have enough black people in a, in a, Industry that's as important, as strategic to the, to the, to the country, to the constitution and to, to everything that we aspire to be as a country. So we're going to be speaking to people a lot more qualified and informed than I am. First, we'll be speaking to advocate Mahla Peselo, uh, the secretary of advocates for transformation, Johannesburg. Advocate, welcome to the show. Thank you. And secondly, someone who I'm hoping we now have on the, on the line, Siham Samai from the National Association for Democratic Lawyers. Siham, can you hear us? Yes. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Okay, perfect. So firstly, both to welcome you to the show and for making time for us. And I'd just love to get sort of an introductory answer from the both of you. We'll start with you, uh, Advocate Maklape. I mean, we hear some really worrying statistics about the, the, the number of, of black people who are not only in the in the field, but who are senior in the field. And I'd love if you could give us an idea of, of what those numbers look like and, and, why is, and why is this the case? Why do we have... Why do we have this lack of representation and transformation in, in the legal field? I, I think if we are to talk about lack of transformation in the 
in the profession, we can talk about it at two levels. Mm. The first would be representativity. Representativity uh, within the profession. And on the second level, it would be transformation involving those already within the field. As regards your question as to why the numbers are low, I think um, it's not necessary for us to unpack our history, but you must accept that as at 1994, mm. the figures were traditionally very, very low. And if you were to go actually further back than that, at least 30 years, black people were not even permitted to practice in the same building as white advocates. So that basically is, is the background against which we, we must have this discussion. There has been an increase since 1994 of entry into the profession by people of color and by women. Um, <clears throat> but what happened at least until 2005, mm. the numbers entering the profession were, were pretty low. So the number of people taken for pupillage um, were, were rather low if you compare white males to black males completely. And by black, I mean both uh, Indian, African, and colored. Mm. And if you, if, you, if you further compare them to females, firstly, white females, and lastly, black females. Black females uh, had the lowest record of, of admission. Then you, once they are admitted... You then have to look at the the nature of the practice in the first three years. Normally with us at the bar, the first three years are the more or less the deciding years. Um, it's, it's a make it or break it period. And we found that the level of attrition in the first five years is highest amongst black females followed by black males. So they simply do not have sufficient flow of work to sustain a practice um, and hard as they may hold on to the dream of becoming an advocate, they are forced to face the realities and bow out and go find other work or be employed. So that is the numbers issue. Then there is transformation on a different level, which is of those that stay, what is the caliber of work they are um, exposed to and they get to do? So much that when you... As an outsider, you are looking at what an average 5, 10, 15-year-old advocate looks like or what their practice looks like. Must you do that with reference to a black man, to a black female, to a female, or to white males? Because you can never have a singular answer. Mm. A, a white man at 10 years at the bar has got a level of practice that very few, I mean, minuscule number of black men can match. Um, if you then try and compare the, that the 10-year-old white males at the bar with black females, then it is actually even ridiculous. So th there is transformation on that level as well, which is the quality and the type of work that practitioners mm. get exposed to and therefore the rate at which they are able to develop the forensic skill of their chosen profession. I mean, thanks for that, you know, really in-depth, I mean, overview. A lot I want to jump into there. But first, see how I'd love to hear from you when we ask, what we, you know, we're hearing a lack of transformation and representation. What, what, why are we in this situation? Why is it like this? Well, 
I think that I'm most probably going to concur with what the advocate was saying. Mm. But just firstly, I mean, Adele has embarked on, on a dialogue with different with women lawyers, advocates within the legal profession to be able to um, find out what are these multidimensional type of challenges which, which they face. But one thing we need to recognize is that the legal profession is a microcosm of our broader society. And um, we need to be able to reflect on the challenge of gender transformation and equality as a country. Um, and, and then we need to be able to reflect inwards on our own development in order to ensure that, that we reflect outwardly the vision of our constitution. And that is for the entire legal profession. So gender issues are prevalent everywhere and it remains a product of our community and dominant cultures. Now, within the legal profession, and it's something which the, the advocate touched on, is mm. that, and maybe I should just make it clearer, is that our justice system or whether or not our legal profession are still dominated, for example, by issues of patriarchy, white supremacy, as well as privilege. And it's something which we need to acknowledge then also the roles of women within South Africa, um, gender inequality, where the ability of women is questioned and presumed to always be inferior um, uh, to other, uh, uh, either uh, um, male, uh, 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 like males. So how does this relate to, specifically to the legal profession also, is that women lawyers, um, that they are senior, but they're not senior partners nor are they senior counsel. And they are completely exclu excluded from certain areas of law because they are assumed to be more emotional to handle certain areas of law. And all they have to be is possibly family lawyers, children, law, uh, um, within children's rights environment, etc. Because that is the closest to the stereotypical role um, uh, within the community. So certain presumptions exist within our profession and it needs to be unlearned before we can properly move forward. And I think this is one of the challenges that we need to look at 20 years um, into democracy, that we do have the procedural laws, we do have um, uh, policies, etc. But there's many things that need to unlearn, uh, the profession has to unlearn to be able to ensure that the women lawyers um, are effective within the legal profession. Advocate, I'd like to hear your experience on, if you could tell us about perhaps some examples of what you've seen. Just now we heard that there are systems of patriarchy and white privilege that continue to exclude uh, black and female lawyers. And you mentioned the level of attrition is highest amongst black women and and in, in, in those early years. And then the example of as... As so, if there's a, a white man who uh, gets ten years into his career, his practice is going to probably get, be much more advanced, on average, than his black counterpart. Can you give us some examples as to how that happens? Is it briefing patterns? Is it that they don't get the work? Um, how, how does it work for for these young advocates, uh, or sorry, young attorneys? Um, young attorneys or young advocates? <laughs> it's, it's two different things. So I, I think it's I actually that whole that whole mm. process of I'm now I've made it into the field, but you're saying at ten years, uh, you know, somebody who's black has less experience and is less qualified than somebody on the other side. So what what are those different stages that result in somebody having mm. sort of poorer or less experience after the ten years? I I think it, um, and this will sound very basic, but it is this basic. It's access to opportunity, it's access to work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as, as with any profession, ours is based on experience. The more you get exposed to certain kind of work, the more you sharpen your knives and the better you become. Now, you will find um, in most instances, particularly with uh, black people, it's not impossible that for five years they're running a particular gambit, which is the same kind of work, and that is their only source of work, uh, like, let's say, um, a road accident fund kind of work. Now, not that it is not useful or that you do not acquire any skill, but I'm sure you'll admit that you can do it so long and no further, particularly when you're not interested in specializing in that field and you require exposure to other kinds of legal work so that you can develop your other skills. But what happens is that because of the absence of of sufficient flow of work, people end up being stuck in one field, Hmm. not exactly of their choosing, and they get stuck in a rut. Now, um, predominantly with white males, they have the, uh, the advantage that their development is consistent with their number of years at the bar. If they, if, if they start, let's say, with uh, work such as road accident fund, in no time they have expanded their field and they are dealing with other issues. And the longer they, they stay at the bar, the more experienced they become, the more complex the issues they deal with. But you don't find that uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to everybody at the bar. So at the end of the day, when you look at somebody at five years and you expect them to have a particular level of skill and think you should be able to throw anything at them, difficult as it may be, they will not drown. They will, they will be able to deal with the matter. You find that doesn't necessarily extend to black people and you wonder why that is so. And it's simply because they haven't had appropriate exposure. And what happens specifically? You said they're not able to break out in this example is the road accident fund. So what happened? What kind of networks and access? What do you think is that sort of missing pin? Okay. Um, <clears throat> the, the representative from Nadell spoke of two important things, which is patriarchy first. Uh, but I think I would like to qualify it and say white patriarchy. And then it's a question of networks. So... For anyone who comes to the bar with absolutely no networks uh, within the legal profession and mm. more importantly with attorneys because we are briefed by attorneys mm. and doesn't have networks with um, institutional clients in particular, finds it very difficult to break into the system. So w- it, it ends up being a white men's gentleman's club which is if you do get exposure either to the attorneys or to the high uh, net worth clients, particularly institutional clients, you then have to be invited into the network. And who issues that invitation is basically who dominates, and these would be the white males. I hear you. (laughs) See, I wanted to ask especially about a a resource that you were part of at Nadell about gender transformation in the legal field. We're talking a lot about race. Now I'm curious how specifically on gender are there mm-hmm. any sort of differences you see in a, in a different kind of prejudice or disadvantage towards the female or black female advocates and what, what does that look like in concrete terms? What are they experiencing? I mean, um, obviously we had uh, four dialogues already and we're still going to have another another two this year um, because we're moving in terms of all the provinces but 
um, certain patterns that, that, that have been emerging is that women are able to reflect on the interconnectivity of the racial transformation and gender transformation within the legal profession. Although there is a clear sense that women, um, uh, although they come from like different professions uh, within the legal fraternity, the, the, they are shared and similar obstacles and barriers, but it's multi-sectional, and it, it, but it's also different. So women reflected on how their gendered roles in society so prejudice them and, and prejudice in respect of motherhood, care responsibilities. Um, there was also reflection on the lack of support systems um, and, and presumptions, uh, uh, which is within the legal profession. Um, and structures for women seeking to enter the profession and, and where that duty actually is. Because if, I think one of the challenges is that if, if, if they speak to substantive equality, we speak about equality of outcome, yeah, equality of opportunity. And we, within the current paradigm, we're moving from the, the, the wrong premise, is how do we promote that access? for black women within the legal profession. And we don't much come from a rural area, and we haven't even discussed other forms of uh, discrimination which women um, uh, 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 face. Um, LGBTI communities um, also within that particular environment. So those are all challenges that, that, that we are looking at within this uh, um, dialogue. And I said um, these are only issues that are coming out of the five dialogue sessions that we had thus far, um, there's a lot of presumptions, and those presumptions obviously have to be unlearned uh, around competency, around work, um, around um, access, about networks. Networks is a major, major challenge, and it's something which has come out of all the dialogue sessions. It's the type of support structures that the um, organized legal profession and even uh, the departments are giving women to be able to ensure that there's access. So uh, that support structure is very important because mm. women lawyers come in without that particular network. Mm. Mm. And how does government, how does the organized profession create that network and opportunities? Um, and, and that is a major challenge. Mm. Hey, thanks, I'm Advocate. I think you wanted to jump in there. Uh, <coughs> Well, not exactly jump in because I, I fully agree with, with what she says. Yeah. I, I just wanted to touch again on, on the issue we, we're just discussing, which is the issue of networks. Yeah. Now, um, an interesting phenomenon has developed in the country, and, and I'm speaking strictly f- uh, from an advocate's perspective, whereas li- we are litigators being advocates. And the state is the biggest litigator in the country. And uh, we are now sitting here, 21 years after democracy, discussing these difficulties as if an institution such as the state is not in power and is not the biggest litigator in the country. Considering our numbers at the bar, you would have expected that we should not be having problems of networking, at least insofar as the state itself is concerned. And by the state, I mean the state in its broadest context. This includes um, state-owned enterprises. This includes the state at all levels. So what, what you find instead happening is the very briefing patterns that are very skewed when the client is a private sector uh, client, 
like um, with with companies, that same practice is now perpetuating within the state. When we talk of networks, for instance, part of the networking is is knowing and being exposed to as many attorneys as possible. Now, if the state is not developing uh, black attorneys and is not giving them appropriate exposure, and I say this remembering that I think the only branch of law the state is not involved in is family law in terms of litigation, but every other branch is, is well represented. If the black attorneys are not given an opportunity by the state, then it means that Black advocates cannot network with black attorneys and get to know them better, and you know, so it it is the same, is is the same process except that this time it involves the state, and I think that is about the most disappointing aspect of it. One would have expected that twenty one years into democracy we would be debating briefing patterns in so far as they relate to private clients, but not the state. Mm. But unfortunately, we continue to. I know that some of the cases I've been at reporting when you see the states involved are very high-profile individuals from the state. It is quite quite sort of shocking when, you know, it's sort of surprising to see this whole white, or usually old white male team. I remember at the Marikana Commission, I think Dalian Pofu particularly pointed yeah. out that situation with, I think it was Cyril Ramaphosa, deputy president, the deputy president's legal team. But I'm wondering from from both of you, the... I think we were talking before this and one and, and about how perhaps we could change it. And one of the issues that Fatima raised was the Legal Practices Act, which, if I understand mm-hmm. it, reduces the barriers and the gatekeeping to in terms of briefing advocates, whether that has made or could make any difference, as well as the bar's recent declaration that and I don't know the exact details, but is it a team of three advocates must have at least mm-hmm. one black person yeah. on the team? Mm-hmm. Will these mm-hmm. efforts make any sort of difference? Uh, Oh, sorry. All right, just Um, a resolution uh, because I think it will be a quicker one. Um, We we hope it will make a difference. Will it make an earth-shattering difference? We don't think so. And it it was not uh, put forward at the AGM (coughs) on the understanding that, you know, it's the alpha and omega of the problems we are facing. It is but one of the many steps we can take. Uh, I, I, I must point out that, you know, you, as you know, the bar is a self-regulating body. And, and we've got a constitution which, which basically it dictates how members must behave within this association on a number of levels. And um, except insofar as it relates to transformation. Hmm. So the bar itself did not recognize the need to have transformation as an element that the bar must monitor and must enforce. So th- this is just the, the first step because at least now the um, resolution as adopted renders it professional misconduct to have a team of three or more where not a black, no black person is represented. Now, will it resolve all our problems? No, because mm-hmm. uh, it's not like we, we do not appreciate that it is not in the majority of cases that you have teams of three or more. Most cases, it's, um, you know, one man shows or at most two. And the resolution doesn't extend that far. But at least to that little percentage, we trust that it will make a difference. Okay. Advocate Machlaup is yeah. not convinced. Siham, you wanted to say something? Yes, I just wanted to say that, I mean, one of the positive uh, things about the Legal Practice Act is that we find ourselves now in a larger repo process. And 
um, we are, what, what we can do is that we can assist maybe make submissions to the current National Legal um, uh, Forum um, to facilitate a paradigm shift where the emphasis, impetus is not just on, on numbers as an indicator of transformation. It's something which the advocate acknowledged and, and, and just identified. But where women and gender equality find uh, substantive rights of enjoyment, protection, and promotion. And that is very important because we are within that space now where we'll be able to engage with the, the professional body. Mm-hmm. So, so this particular research we are looking at is to, to guide that dialogue engagement with these professional bodies. Because the fact is, 20 years down the line, we are women, for black women, are not on the same playing field. And we need to acknowledge that. We have been playing within a field which wasn't our field in the first place. And we need to be able to make structures accountable to be able to ensure that there is an inclusive approach. Mm -hmm. So one of the the, the issues that we need to look at is that provisions and programs must give preferential treatment to members, uh, to, to women groups considered to have been discriminated and disadvantaged in the past. And, and, and we do not have the advantage of another three to four hundred years to make it right. And that is what we need, need to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. It needs to be made right now. Mm-hmm. So what we, we look at um, seem to be uh, these type of measures, it, it is a manifestation of our right to equality, of our substantive rights. And it must not be seen as a limitation of that particular right. And that is where we need to do that paradigm shift. It is very important when we start engaging with the new structures that that should be the new mindset when we move forward so that it can be an inclusive um, um, uh, 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 environment for women and in particular black women. Strong remarks. Advocate Maklap, I think you have some closing remarks to close uh, in, us in off. In fact, I was, I was just going to, to add a word to that and fully agree. And, and if, if the act is to have delivered anything, it would at least deliver that. Because I think as self-governing bodies, we have, we have proven that we are incapable of doing it ourselves. Uh, Ten years ago, 2005, the Bar commissioned a very inv- uh, expensive investigation and report. We call it the Deloitte Report. And it, that report recommended the very issues that she is talking about. Mm. But um, we shelved it away and nothing happened. So maybe through the act, we just might achieve something. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Siham Samai, Advocate Makhla Peselo, thank you so much for making time. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. We're into a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. Remember, today's Daily Mavic show is brought to you by Postnet Korea. Today, Patty from Paris sent Christmas presents to Paris. Graham from Grahamstown sent gifts to Homozo and Chaberoni. Both used Postnet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. Postnet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 Postnet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. If you like, good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. If you're just tuning in, remember you can tweet us on at DMShowsAre. You can call us on 0861 triple five one eight nine yes i got that right fantastic now we're just switching topics you want to talk about some corruption stories that that have been coming out of kenya so we've recently had a, a few breaking stories and you want to really dig into what's going on is corruption actually increasing or is it just perhaps more reporting and we actually had 
or seeing perhaps a more uh, aggressive uh, approach uh, from the state to journalists and, and other people reporting on this. Uh, with us from Kenya, we'll be talking to John Girashu, a senior reporter at the Daily Nation. John, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Perfect. John, sorry for the long wait. Thanks for holding. Okay. Okay, perfect. John, I'd love you could walk us through... Um, you know some of the work you've been you've been writing on and reporting on around corruption in 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 Kenya, and 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 how it came about that so you had of a running with the with the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, and and if you just walk us through what happened there. Um, we we have been okay. We because we are parliamentary reporters, but um, the the public accounts committee here has been looking at the Auditor General's uh, statement of accounts. For the year 2013 2014. Mm. So, out of that, we have been uh, getting information from those uh, meetings about uh, what would appear to be corruption, uh, uh, material that was procured at uh, inflated prices, and um, in the case that uh, I have been questioned about, um, the apparent refusal by a ministry to provide documents supporting uh, some uh, transactions in that ministry. So, from that, um, from the last one, on so actually on the Interior Ministry, which uh, is the ministry responsible for national security. Mm. Uh, so when it was asked some questions and we had that in the meeting, we wrote about it and the minister got angry with us and uh, that's how we ended up accusing us of uh, getting information from uh, from from what he thought was a privileged uh, or a classified uh, meeting and then uh, writing about it with them. Okay, I hear you. And what and what and what kind of questions were being asked when you're being questioned about this? What what was the response? Was it aggressive? Were there th- any threatening of arrest? And and when you were held, what was that experience like? Um, it was uh, it was not a good experience mm. because uh, it is a restriction of the, my freedom. Uh, at one point, they took my phone away. Uh, it was not really a, a good experience. But on the other hand. Uh, the policemen also appeared to be under some sort of pressure they are not used to. So that also appeared to annoy them and to, and to have them doing work that's not uh, really really part of their mandate. Hmm. I mean, I mean, John, you've been doing sort of this this line of work for a while. Um, so I mean, are, are you seeing are you seeing a, a Kenyan state that is perhaps more aggressive or suspicious? Um, or unwelcoming to um, to your field, to journalists and, 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 and journalists alike who are trying to uncover stories and report on issues, some of which will be around corruption and maladministration by the state. Do you feel like they're getting more aggressive on these issues? Yeah, we've definitely uh, had concerns from way back in 2013 mm. that the government was coming up with uh, uh, laws that would amount to restricting our freedom. In fact, we have two of those laws that were eventually passed in 2013 mm. and which uh, have since been challenged in court by journalists themselves. But increasingly, uh, that, despite that, uh, we have seen other laws also coming in which, are, uh, which would make our, our work very difficult. Um, there was one in uh, December last year about, uh, that required us to seek permission from the police to publish photographs from a scene of a terror attack. Mm. Um, that was also beaten down by the court, but it was part of a pattern that is uh, that is evident up to now. 
I mean, that sounds really worrying. I'm, I'm curious, John, where do you think he's coming from? Because, I mean, you've, you've already mentioned the, it seems like the insecurity um, in Kenya, you know, post the Westgate attacks and post the Garissa attacks seems to be at play with the state's thinking. But could you give us maybe just some, some insight into what you think is informing this, this government aggression and an antagonism towards journalism? Um, I, I think we have uh, some people within government who have not yet embraced the ideas of uh, the Constitution passed in 2010. Hmm. So they are bringing what we call an old-school mentality to a modern world. And um, they are unfortunately people who share that position and have been encouraging them to to, to come up with that thing. Uh, and for me, the worrying part is that the authorities or the people who are in charge of them they don't catch these things early enough so that they end up uh, in Parliament where I am right now. And they, uh, like in December last year, they ended up causing uh, a national embarrassment with the uh, MP fighting in the chamber. I'm not, I mean, remember that. That was quite, I remember scenes of MPs fighting and people, you know, I think somebody threw their underwear at somebody else at some point. Um, John, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, a press release from Cabinet Secretary in Kayseri around around it seemed to be targeted at at you know twitter activists and journalists and it almost seems like they they are seeing reporting on the state and reporting on corruption as almost a threat to the stability of the of the country and are saying that this is part of some kind of international campaign or conspiracy to to undermine or destabilize the, the Kenyan government i mean what, what do you think about that uh, i think products of a fertile imagination because um, I, I personally haven't been approached by anybody or told by anybody that uh, we want to bring down the government and give the information that we ask you. And in fact, uh, all that information has been put forward in public meetings. Mm-hmm. Had it been a case of uh, someone plotting to topple the government, ensure meetings like those will be held away from the public here. Yeah. But this is information that is coming from an independent uh, body, the uh, Office of Auditor General being handled by a rather independent body that's the National Assembly, uh, rather by a committee in the National Assembly. So uh, I'd say those are those old, old school, old fashioned people who uh, would, would uh, repeat what was said uh, by dictators in the past, in the 1980s, and uh, before our country got into democracy in 1992. And I hear you, John. Sorry if you're just tuning in. It's the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're talking to John Girashu, Kenyan journalist who was held by the Criminal Investigation Department for reporting on corruption. I mean, now, John, when you when you look at all these things holistically, the issues coming out of different ministries, you know, devolution, the National Youth Service, um, interior ministries, do, do you feel like there's actually an increase in corruption or, or are journalists perhaps getting better at at reporting on it and finding out what's going on, or do you? Because it feels when you watch the, the news and read the newspapers, it feels like there's a, been a massive increase in corruption. Is, is that actually the case? Um, uh, to some extent, yes. Uh, I've been told by people in government before that uh, when the budget of a ministry is uh, doubled mm. from one year to the next, uh, let's say last year you're getting four billion shillings, and the following year you get uh, sixteen. There is no capacity in that department to absorb that money. And what happens is uh, the money now starts getting taken by people who find the, that it is there, plenty. It is, uh, the budget has been approved by parliament, and uh, there are more opportunities to take it. You know, like if, uh, 
if you had a budget for 4 billion, you are maybe only paying salaries, trailing vehicles, and uh, maintaining your office. But when it comes to 16 or even 10, you have to have projects that you're undertaking. You have to have increased procurement. And I think that's where now people get a chance to to take this money. Uh, what we call in Kenya, to eat this money. It is available and the systems are not capable of uh, absorbing it. And there's a lot of uh, pressure uh, from from whoever appointed the, 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 the government to deliver, to show that things are working. So in that process, we get as people, give as people, as people a very um, a very rich environment for which benefit. And I hear you, Jonathan. I mean, it's really worrying to watch. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about a report that recently came out, but I think it was Journalists for Justice, about the Kenya Defense Force and their operations in, in Somalia as part of AMISOM. And they're painting a picture of an army that's not doing very much, you know, protecting and fighting. And they seem to be, you know, almost running taxes on people involved in, 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 in the charcoal industry, in the, in the sugar industry. Um, how much? How is that being received? You know, in Kenya, and is is that a blow to the to the government's portrayal of them trying to do whatever they can to to to, to fight terror? Uh, yes, I'll say it uh, causes a lot of damage to the credibility of the army and the credibility of the army because uh, when the army was sent there, there was uh, a, a lot of um, campaign. To, to, Tell us, we inform us Kenyans that uh, going there was the right thing to do. Mm. But we have not seen anything that uh, that, that tells us that this money, that uh, the campaign is going to stop at any time. We don't know, and we are not kept abreast of what the uh, army is doing there. So when such a report comes out, uh, it's only to do damage. Uh, but also, we have not uh, had the opportunity as journalists to go in Somalia as independent actors and uh, find out um, the extent of this or how what it is. Um, because of the basic reason, uh, logistics of getting there mm. and uh, you will not be operating in a safe environment. I mean, I hate you, John. I mean, I think my final question before we let you go, I know you're reporting from Parliament today, is just, I mean, what what do you think is missing? What How do we create a, how do we create a Kenya where the journalists... And the and the government able to work together to you know to have an informed democracy and actually you know fight corruption and 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 curb insecurity. What 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 do you think is the way forward on on feeling what seems to be a mistrust between between the you know different crucial bodies in a, in a functioning democracy? That's that's a tough question. Um, but I think if information was made more accessible. Hmm. Um, and um, I think we also need in Kenya right now uh, the jailing of a big person. Uh, you know, the, the, the taking to task of an important person for being involved in corruption. I think in Kenya, if you jail like three people, three big people whose names are always in the paper, I think the public will begin to see that uh, that sort of crime uh, does not pay. But as uh, for the long term, um, I don't know whether I'm being a typical journalist, but I don't think there's any much hope right now. I hear you. I'd rather put you on the spot a bit. Anyway, John Girashu, thank you so much for making time for us. I'll let you get back to what you need to do. Okay. Thank okay, you. perfect. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, it's a Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. We're just going into the last portion of the show. Next, we'll be talking to filmmaker Ernest Nkosi about his film Tina Sobabili. 
Greg, I'd actually like to hand over this to you. I know you watched the film. I know you're quite interested in this. So I'd love to, if you could welcome Ernest and, and take it from here. Ernest, are you there? Can you hear us? I'm here. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? Well, fantastic. Very happy to be speaking to you guys. Uh, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Now, let's just jump, jump straight into it. The, yes. the National Film and Video Foundation recently selected Tina Subobile as its nomination to the Oscars for, for I think, the best foreign language film. You, Can you just you t- cut you cut out the story, brother. Oh, no, no, it's, no, it's no problem. I was saying the National Film and Video Foundation recently selected Tina Sobobila, your, your movie, as its nomination to the Oscars for, I think, the best language, best foreign language film. Can yeah, you, that's true. Can you just tell us about, number one, how that feels? I'm sure it must be a great honor. And number two, what, what the next steps are in, in seeing whether this becomes an official Oscar nominated film? Uh, okay. First part of your question, we were, Extremely excited. Um, we got picked over, I think there was a good eight films that were submitted, um, and to come out top sort of that bunch was exciting. But before that, uh, about three weeks ago, we, we got the nod to to enter our film into the Golden Globes. So we've got the Golden Globes coming up and then the actual Oscar itself. So we are on route on Monday off to LA to campaign for the Golden Globes, we've got our official screening on the 27th of November. Wow. And then, um, yeah, it's just a really it's an extremely exciting time, nerve-wracking time. Um, we've been doing this independently throughout the way, and it's, 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 a, it's a miracle that we've managed to reach this far. And what does that entail, going to campaign for a Golden Globe? How, how does that work? you gotta meet, you, you, you got to meet the foreign, in the Golden Globes, you've got to Meet the foreign, the foreign press. You've got to give your screeners. They've got to basically feed you, poke you, ask you questions that they have about the film just to make sure that if you are the right candidate, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a full on, full on, full court press mm-hmm. of campaigning to get that uh, nomination and the eventual win. Now, and if I'm correct, this is your first feature film, right? This is true, yeah. So, and you've won awards at the Josie, Rwanda, Pan African, Urban, and Urban World Film Festivals. Yeah. And now, yeah. now there's all this. How, how are you dealing with all these, all these successes? It must be pretty overwhelming. I think, I think, like, not, really not to sound otherwise, but the successes have been very deserved with, for us, this is now a five year project ongoing. Because we had to raise the money ourselves, so every cent we put into the film, that was ourselves. So that was years of going without, and it's nice to finally be recognized for that effort, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we shot the film in seven days, uh, full on crew, full, full everything. Wow. I released it independently to fourteen screens. We came eight in box office, beating the only South African independent film to come. Eight. It's the only time we'll ever be happy about coming eight. <laughs> <laughs> to come eight at box office. I mean, some of those Hollywood budget, uh, budgets that we, we, we Hollywood films we beat, mm. they budgets are they budgets are ridiculous. I mean, the poster budget is the equivalent of our entire production budget. <laughs> yeah. Now. Tell us a little bit about the journey to get here. You're sort of alluding to it now, but from what I understand, the whole crew and the whole team involved in this thing were all under 30. You self-financed it. It took you, yeah. am I seven, seven years? Is that right? It took us four years to four years. get the, the financing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we are now on year six, mm-hmm. um, just because we we had to make the film and then get the film to the qualifying festivals, and then this is yeah, this is now year two. We mm-hmm. made the film last year, we released it this year, and it's <laughs> still going. Mm. That that journey though, while while you didn't have finance, while you're just sort of really trying to keep on pushing this thing, that must have been really hard at times. Yeah, extremely difficult because I mean. Like, who's going to take a chance on some unknown director with a crazy script hmm. um, that deals with sugar daddy, you know, which are like all the topics on the South African context. So, so it was the decision to to find it didn't come come out of Cape Town or find it from so it came from a lot of rejection and a lot of a lot of no's, you know. But the story was strong enough that we we needed to do whatever needed to be done in order to get the story told. And to be sitting here now talking to you is is, 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 is literally a testament to that never-dying spirit of, I can do it and I don't and absolutely. I mean, Ernest, I'm curious about the, the goodwill that sometimes came your way. I was reading in the newspaper the other day, and I'd love if you could just tell the story of when you had to go to, to the States and Vancouver and being stuck in an airport. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. such a crazy story. Could you please tell that? Yeah, so you were basically stranded at JFK because um, <laughs> our funding didn't come through, and we needed this funding to get to Canada. Mm. And we were three weeks away from our departure day. Somehow we managed to to get to Vancouver, but I was flying from JFK to Phoenix. And in Phoenix, I was detained because um, they thought there was fraudulent activity on my, on my credit card. And needless to say, I left the credit card with the other guys. You know, we all had to travel from four different places because we all couldn't get on the same flight. So I had traveled first. I traveled first so I could make our screening, which was the very next day. Um, so I was going to make the screening at 1, 1, 1 p.m. And the police detained me and interrogated me for about three hours. And then eventually they, they, the festival uh, vouched for me and I was let go. But before being let go, I was banned from flying on American Airways. So I found myself stranded in Phoenix. <laughs> so I was stranded in, stranded in Phoenix. With no credit card, because the guys have the credit card. Everybody's flying. So I literally was grounded in the field for the three clouds. Till eventually, I got a, fly, uh, got a flight on Alaska. But that flight had to fly from from Phoenix to Seattle, Seattle, Portland to Portland, um, Vancouver. So in one day, I was on four flights. Needless to say, I missed my screening and only arrived in Vancouver at 1 a.m. the next day. So... <laughs> So it was just getting there was a journey and a half. Jeez, what a story! And, and you mentioned that there would just seem to be, you know, people coming to the party along the way and people offering accommodation and food. And is that something yeah. that you found? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just the goodwill. I mean, by the time we by the time we arrived in Canada, I mean, the, the, the story was all over the festival. These are the guys. Those are the crazy guys. Yeah. Ended up in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so people were very interested. And then when they found out that we were a, a South African influence the Austin, yeah. even more interest came. And then a few days into that trip, we found out about the Golden Globe. Jeez. And we literally packed our screening, like 250 people. Wow. Absolutely 
amazing. And I mean, these people, these people don't know Seleska from a bar, so, and for them to come out like that in those numbers is really humbling. And the film played amazingly. They absolutely loved it, you know, and from there we managed to get a lot more contact, people introducing us to people, uh, yo, would you would you meet this person, send your I mean now we're gonna have a we're gonna have a story in in the Hollywood Reporter and wow. So stuff like that, which all helps to with the attraction of us containing for these two major awards because even though we can't compete traditionally with with the other films, like our story is powerful enough to to get us that hmm. that recognition and not not only recognition but just a fair chance to review fame and then decide from there. Mm-hmm. Already, if you're an African film, you're dealing with, uh, I'm not really going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Ernest, before you mentioned the, the the movie is, you know, one of the key issues that it's about is sugar daddies, but it also seems to, I think for me, it also go deals with family and friendship and those relationships as yeah, well as yeah. as well as violence yeah. and and you know quite particularly life, I guess in in a township and in in, in this case, Alex. Yeah. Um, but. I still, I sort of watched it and I really enjoyed it. I loved it, but I found it hard to put my finger on exactly what I liked about it so much. What do you think? What, what is it that you think that sort of has really created the success? Is it, is it the acting? Is it the sugar daddy aspect? No, I think it's, it's, it's showing, showing people from the township in that light because they never get seen as, I mean, most people that, that are the affluent South Africa or the, drive around the township or try to never actually understand that these people have lives and there's, there's issues that concern the same people that drive around and the same people that drive through and it all have similarities, all have commonalities that, that are that are when when highlighted people are like, Wow, actually I didn't know that we share that common bond. So for me it would be the portrayal of people that live in the township like this in an authentic way from someone who grew up who grew up in a similar township. Ernest, what a great story, man. Um, we're really behind you 100% and we really look forward to seeing the movie continue to achieve greater heights and also to see you continue to grow as a filmmaker. So a big congratulations and thank you so much time for making time for us. Thank you very much. Appreciate the support. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for tuning in. Please download and share the podcast. You know where to find us next week, 1 to 2 p.m., The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Today's show was proudly delivered to you by Postnet Courier. See you next week. Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used Postnet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. Postnet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 Postnet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.